Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. All right, so uh, here's what I want you to do. Grab a Bible. What book of the Bible are we studying? Romans. Romans. All right, Romans chapter 10. Um... What do y'all need to know about? Um, Last week, we did Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Today, we're doing verses 5 through 13. Now, we've done 25 weeks. Is that right? Where's Ryder at? Ryder has notes. Ryder or Kaylin, you normally have notes. So uh, I think we have 25 weeks or so, 430 verses, a lot to cover, and uh, we're picking it back up tonight. Now, before um, we hop into where we're headed, question, uh, what is your worst injury story or scar story? All right? All right, so turn to a neighbor. I'll give you guys a minute. Ready, set, Go. All right, I'll tell you my worst injury story. Um, I mean, I've done, I've done pretty like, I've, I've, this body's 30 years old, but I've done some damage to it. Um, I've dislocated my shoulder like 10 times, dislocated kneecaps and crazy other things. But my worst story is when I was in sixth grade. Been around here for a while, you may have heard the story. I'll do it quick. Um, so I'm riding my GoPed, which is a gas scooter, and uh, every Christmas and every um, birthday and things like that, I would try to you know, save up my money to invest back into this little, little GoPed, right? Eventually, I got this GoPed. Stock goes 19 miles per hour. I got it to go like 45 miles per hour, right? So I'm 45 pounds, and, uh, and I'm going 45 miles per hour on this thing. Well, we used to do these things um, where, like, every, like, six months, my neighborhood, because obviously everyone else had go-peds, too. Everyone else had bad parents. And, uh, and so we do these races down this one street, Meyer, right over here, actually. And uh, I grew up across the street. And so um, my go-ped was, like, really like, one of the fastest. And so I'm racing my buddy, Philip, and uh, I'm not really paying attention. The guy says, go, and uh, Philip gets ahead of me. But I start, and I start rapidly approaching him, right? So sixth grade, and I'm, I'm approaching about 40, 45 miles per hour, and I'm, I'm fastly catching up to him. He didn't click his helmet in, and so he is 15 feet ahead of me, and his helmet gets pushed off by the wind, lodges under my front tire. I fly like Superman, without the ability, like literally like 40 feet, right? I smack the ground, I roll, and my heart is racing, right? Have you ever been in like one of those slow motion moments? You're like, you know, like, and so I hit the ground, I roll like half a football field, right? I, I get up and I'm like, am I alive, right? Like, so I grab my go pit, I bring it over to the side, uh, I sit down, and then I just look at my, my wrist and I see that I'm wearing a jacket and there's blood that's coming down my fingers. And I'm like, what could that be? And I go to try to pull back my jacket, and it's not pulling. And I'm like, what could that be? And so I push it in there, and I'm not wearing a watch. I'm like, what is that? And I have to unhook it from something. And I pull back, and I just see, bam, like Colgate white bone, right? And I just freak out. I'm going to lose my mind. Like, my favorite art, right? I'm freaking out. And, uh, and so all my buddies run over. They're like, dude, are you all right? You all right? And they see my, my buddy Steve sees my arm, and I'm like, dude, what, like, Am I going to amputate it? You know, like you're in sixth grade. You have no idea. You're like, dude, what am I going to do? Like, just with one arm. Like, I mean, it's, it's, the worst scenario is going to my mind, right? So Steve runs me to my house, and uh, my dad and mom bring me to the hospital, obviously. This is like Friday around like, I don't know, four or five o'clock, right? So we get to the hospital, and uh, obviously they give me like morphine and cocaine or whatever they give you there. And, uh, um, <laughs> and so they end up wrapping my arm, and they're like, look, you need to see a specialist that, that re-breaks bones back into their proper place. And it's Friday. They're not open. You need to wait till Monday. I'm like, hook a brother up on heroin or whatever you need to do for the weekend. So I'm not screaming at my parents, right? 
So high as a kite, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, Monday morning, 8 o'clock, first thing in the morning, I'm headed into uh, the specialist. And I'm in the specialist, and no one has told me that they need to re-break this. I think my parents were, like, keeping that from me. Because after the adrenaline, you know, like, after you break something, you ever broke something, adrenaline's pumping, you're like, you don't feel anything. You're like, like, it's unbelievable. You feel like Superman, right? You're like, break this one, right? It's just crazy. But like, you know, five to 10 minutes later, the adrenaline starts wearing off and you start feeling the pain. Well, imagine three days later, right? And so I'm sitting there at this, uh, on this bed and all of a sudden the specialist comes and, hi, my name is Dr. Doctor, whatever his name is. And, uh, and he's like, all right, Matt, I need you to like, you know, come over here. And you know those little Chinese torture things as a kid, you put your fingers in, you're like, well, this is life, I'm stuck here now. Uh, you, and you need to like, you know, push your finger in and like then take your finger out. Well, they had like this thing that was like off the table. And so I'm laying down on the table and uh, I'm supposed to put my finger, all five fingers in this like contraption. And so I do that and the doctor comes over and he's like, all right, Matt, are you ready? And he grabs my arm here and here. And I'm like, ready for what? And he's like, I'm gonna count to three. And he goes, one, and he goes, and he starts cranking on this thing, right? And I'm, I'm Casper White, right? I'm me and Winter White. And so like, I, he's moving my arm. I can feel my bones going back in place. A horrific moment, right? Now here's the key to the story, right? One, I have an arm again, but two, um, I had to surrender my arm for it to become healed or rather be made right once again, be as it was supposed to be, right? If I kept my arm like this, I'd be like all, you know, I'd be like, if I, if I didn't give my, doc, my hand over to the doctor, that specialist that day, well, my hand would be pretty jacked right now. For it to be as it was supposed to be, as it's originally designed, I needed to give it over and surrender it, right? See, the same, and what we've been learning week after week, what Paul's been trying to teach us is a similar truth comes to salvation, Surrenderance is essential to your salvation. I'm gonna say this again because that's what we're talking about today and that's what we've been talking about every week in the book of Romans. Surrenderance is essential for your salvation, for you to be saved. Now, last week, if you were here, we said that surrenderance, or rather uh, the term saved, can kind of be uh, like a kind of like a tricky word because it kind of has a negative connotation today. And there's really two reasons. These two groups of individuals, you have the ultra-religious and then you have the Weirdly religious, right? So the ultra-religious, the people you see at Huntington Beach with the signs, turn and burn, Jesus saves. You're like, well, I don't feel like I want to invite those people over to hang out on Memorial Day. Yeah, they suck. And then you got the other people, like those weird, those weird religious that like, are always call- calling other believers like brother and sister. And, you know, like, and you're like, no, I don't, want to, I don't want to hang out with you either, right? And so there's this weird dichotomy between the two of them, right? However, this word is unavoidable in Scripture because it speaks to an unavoidable reality that you, I, we are not born saved. Last week we talked about that you were born lost. In our natural, the theological word for this is um, to be unregenerate, our unregenerate natural condition, mankind is not in a right standing with God. You were not born with a ticket into heaven. As popular culture would wish that you would believe that that would be the truth, that's not the case. You were not born saved, you were born lost. And so one of the things that Paul has been teaching us week after week after week is that you and I, we have no righteousness of our own. What does that word righteousness mean? It's the theme of Romans. We've talked about that as well. Righteousness is to have a right standing with God and with others. That is the theme of the whole purpose of the book of Romans. How you, broken, fallen sinner, could be made right with a perfect, holy, and just, and awesome God. The book of Romans, the Roman road, teaches us how you and I could be made right with God. And teaches us, and what we'll discover this week and what we've discovered last week, is that the only way for you to be right with God is through, the, is through faith in Jesus Christ, which means that the person of Jesus Christ, who was born God incarnate, God in Abad, 2,000 years ago, when he cracked the calendar in half, he also cracked all of human civilization in half as well. And now God the Father only sees two categories of people. I'm sure everyone uh, has probably uh, heard or at least seen the, the movie Titanic, right? And the Titanic, I think, is a fitting metaphor for this reality. 
Because when you think about it, all classes of people were aboard the Titanic. You had the wealthy people that invested in Bitcoin early. You had, uh, Bitcoin wasn't around. Anyways, uh, you had the famous people. You had the highly educated people, some PhDs. You probably had some illiterate people that didn't even, didn't even know how to read, right? Uh, you probably had, if there was the rich folks, you definitely had the poor folks, like Jack in the movie. Um, he was in the stern, the, the bottom of the boat. But when the tragic event of the, the, the sinking happened, and uh, the Coast Guard, they only, they only posted two categories in the Cunyard's office in New York. You know what those two categories were on large pieces of paper? One side said lost, and the other side said saved. This is how God views all of human history. This is how God views every single person in this room. This is how God views all of mankind lost or saved. 1 John chapter 5, verse 12 says, whoever has, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And he's talking about eternal life there. Barring from the Titanic illustration that we just, uh, we just used, Imagine that you could go back in time. There's a time machine. We type in whatever the date is, and we can go just minutes before the cruise ship, the Titanic, was about to hit this iceberg. So you run in to the dining hall. All these wealthy people listen to people play violins or whatever. You run on in, and you start screaming at the top of your lungs, everyone, get in the lifeboats now. And you can imagine the passengers on this boat, these wealthy individuals, life's going pretty well for them. They would think, you're crazy, but you're interrupting our dinner. Like, what are you doing? Why? Because... In that moment, the waters of their lives were calm, both figuratively and realistically. So they thought, or literally, so they thought they didn't need to be saved. In other words, your announcement of salvation falls on deaf ears because they don't think they need saving from anything. Just a few minutes later, an hour later, whenever the the unsinkable ship hits the iceberg, and as water begins to flood the halls and the rooms and, and all of that, everyone's attention is now focused on being saved from a watery grave. See, the truth that Paul has been trying to teach you and I week after week after week is your boat is going to hit this inevitable iceberg that's called death. And regardless if your life right now as a young adult is going well, or regardless if your life as a young adult is not going well, everyone keeps swiping left instead of right, whatever, right? Your life's not going the way you want it to go, whatever it may be. Every single one of us needs to be made right with God through Jesus Christ if you want to escape real death. The real death that's talked about in Scripture is the death of your soul. I'm going to recap Romans 3 and Romans 6 for us, which we got to four months ago or something. We talked about there's three types of death. Let me give you a quick definition of what death is. Death is a separation of things that ought not to be separated. That's what death is. Three types of death that are described in the pages of Scripture. Number one, you have physical death. What is physical death? Physical death is your soul being removed from your body. Either your body dies, your soul continues. God never intended for that to happen, by the way. Number two, there's something called spiritual death. This is God's presence removed from you or never given to you. All unbelievers in this room and all unbelievers in human history, this is, they, they, they experience spiritual death. The third death is eternal death. This is your soul removed from God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And so what we have in the pages of Romans chapter 10, where we're reopening up tonight, is Paul really pleading with his fellow Jews to understand this reality, that they are actually spiritually and eternally dead without Jesus Christ that they are not saved. And we talked about this a handful of weeks ago because they're ethnically or nationalistically Jewish people and adhere to certain laws and things like that. That if the Jews of Jesus and Paul's day and if the Jews of our day want to be saved, they need to surrender their lives to Jesus. So one of the things that Paul is also teaching the Jewish people of his time is that that following and adhering to all the laws of the Old Testament, there's 625 of them, by the way, it's a lot. You can't have bacon, which is a bummer. You gotta do your hair in this way. You gotta wear a yarmulke, all these different things, right? That following and adhering to all of these laws cannot save them because even if they could never follow all of them perfectly and wholly. 
See, the problem with the Jews is they didn't think they actually needed a savior for their soul. I need you to listen to this. Rather, they think they just needed a savior for their country. If you examine extra-biblical text around the lifetime of Jesus, even before, you'll learn that what the Jewish people really wanted was a political Messiah who would give them the power to rule over the Roman Empire, anyone that squashed them, a mighty military, uh, and a strong economy, whatever it may be. They actually didn't think they needed to be saved. They thought in some sense of the way that they had a righteousness before God that could get them into heaven by through their effort or whatever it is. I'll give you an example. Um, okay, so the other day, I was watching uh, National Treasure. Uh, so we watched the first one, and then we watched the second one. And uh, not part of the illustration, I'm going to give it to you anyways. Um, as we watched it, my wife and I, um, they start talking about the Surratt family, funny enough. And um, Mary Surratt is my wife's great, 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 great something. And uh, she was the very first woman in, in the United States of America to be executed. And uh, the reason she was executed is because it was thought that she helped plan the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, kind of an important guy in the American history. And it actually wasn't her. It was actually her son, and he fled and blamed it on his mother. Sounds like a cool dude. But um, so not part of it, but we we're dying. I was like, this is wild. How we never know that there are talks about your family, right? So anyways, in one of the scenes in the movie, this kind of Indiana in the Jones scene, uh, they, to get to the tre- treasure they so desperately needed, four people fall through, through this opening, and it, so the floor ends up opening, if you've seen the movie, and four people fall like 20 feet onto this platform. The platform, though, is like exalted, like, I don't know, 100 or so feet up, and there's this wooden beam that goes down like this, and their weight shifts the platform, right? And so all four of them realize they have to balance on this platform to not fall to their deaths through their own human effort, Right? And so one of them ends up seeing that like 20 feet up or so, there's this door, salvation, this door to save. If we want to get to the treasure, we have to figure out a way to balance ourselves and exalt one person or all of us to the place for our saving. So they, they, they all, if you see the movie, they all coordinate in such a way that balance and so they can get to the top, moving them, lifting themselves up in some sense of the way to, to the treasure, to, to being saved or whatever it is. I think many people just think this is exactly how salvation works. As long as I, through my own effort, Work to be good, I can lift myself to the door of salvation. But this could not be further from reality and from what Scripture teaches us. And so I think Paul's words are timely for us in the modern world today because if you hop onto any college campus and ask anyone if they're going to heaven, what do you think their answer most likely is going to be? Yeah. I mean, God doesn't got a problem with me, right? Like, God's, God, God's, God and I are cool, right? And so when you ask, okay, why? why? Why do you think you're going to heaven? They'll say something like, well, I'm a good person. In fact, Barna, a handful of years ago, it's a um, a surveying company, um, they, uh, they found out and they did this to all, uh, hundreds of thousands of people in, in America, said that 51% of Americans, even church-going Americans, believe that they're going to heaven purely because they are a good person. What was more shocking about that is most of the people that were those hundreds of thousands they surveyed were active evangelicals, people that sit in chairs like you each and every single week. And they thought that they get to heaven not by confession and faith in Jesus Christ, but by purely being a good person. Let me ask you a different question, though. What if, isn't, what if it isn't goodness that God asked for? It's perfection. How do, you, how do you feel now? See, the reality is it isn't goodness that God's demand. It's perfection. And this is why the gospel is good news. Because if you are trying to get to heaven by being a good person, then you must be perfect, something none of us have the capacity and possibility of ever becoming. But if you are trying to get to heaven by Jesus, all you need is faith so his perfection can be accredited to your account. That was what we talked about last week, about imputed righteousness, or the imputation of, of Jesus' right standing to you and I through the medium of faith. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, For you are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, so that no man shall boast. Faith is the essence that, and makes um, uh, God's salvic, salvic message 
transfer to you and I. And this is what Paul is trying to teach the Jews. And so all of that sets us up for where we're headed today. Go grab your Bibles. Go with me. Romans chapter 10, verses 5 is where we'll start. Actually, I'll start in verse 1. Just to recap, not really doing a sermon, just doing exegetical teaching to get you guys in your groups in a few minutes. Follow with me. Verse 1, it says this. This is last week. It'll set us up. Brothers, he's talking to the Jews, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal, a passion for God, not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. A few things here. Um, number one, he's reiterating all the stuff we just said. Look, you, are, like, you guys are trying to be like really good people, and truthfully, you're not good enough. Sorry. I know culture says you're good enough. I know your mom said you're good enough. God says you're not good enough. Like, sorry, like you're not good enough. But there is one who is good enough and loves you and can transfer his goodness to you by the medium of faith. That's what he's trying to teach them, right? But he also brings to light something else. Um, in a little more context, he connects verse 5 actually to verse 2. Go with me back up to verse 2. It says, For I, Paul, bear them witness they have a zeal, passion for God, but not according to knowledge. He's saying that the Jews that have rejected Jesus Christ are probably in a worse position, but they also seem to have this kind of weird passion. Like, everyone loves bacon, and they're not even bacon. Um, they, they can't even, like, drive cars, and they can't even do things on their Sabbath day. In fact, in modern Israel, they have these elevators that on the Sabbath day, which is Saturday, um, that stop at every floor just on Saturday. Now, why? It's because there's a commandment that says you're not allowed to light a fire on your Sabbath day. And they think that by pushing an elevator door, the ignition and the electronic impulse that happens there is them igniting a fire. I mean, they've gone that legalistic into this, Right? And so they really believe, because they step onto this elevator, don't press buttons, that that actually places them in a right standing with God. And God's going, you, you missed it. Are you kidding me right now? You missed it. That this, I don't care about you pressing a button on the Sabbath. Like, that's not it. And Jewish people so hold to this called Pharisaicalism that they are morally superior because of their righteous and good deeds. And, 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 and it comes Paul and he goes like, look, God's not even amped on you guys. God thinks like the majority of you guys suck because you've missed it, completely missed it. God in Abad, Jesus Christ, showed up to the temple, and you're like, who are you? The guy that you've said you've been worshiping for millennia now, that Moses and David and Noah and all these people have been talking about, and all the prophets and, and, and the law, all of it's been talking about, you say you have been following this dude. He shows up, knocks on your door, and you go, who are you? You should recognize who you say you've been worshiping for thousands of years now, right? And so what Paul is saying is, look, they seem to have a passion for God, but it isn't based on knowledge, because if it was actually based on knowledge and true desire to know God, they would have accepted Jesus as he came. So all of their rituals and all of their laws and all of their goodness is actually completely and wholly useless. I'll give you an example of this. So, um, uh, okay, a handful of summers ago, we used to do these things, we'll probably bring them back this summer, where we do like random trips on a Saturday, and so uh, one of them was we did a Hollywood hike, and so there's like 50, 60 young adults that came on a, sun a Saturday morning um, to meet here at like 8 o'clock, and then we drove down to uh, LA uh, to do the Hollywood hike, right? So I'm like, I don't know, 20 minutes into this hike, and I'm like, how long is this? And someone was like, oh, it's like 30 more minutes. I was like, nah, bro. So I tried to find like a, like a shortcut, right? And I was like, I think that's a shortcut. So I somehow convinced 20 or 30 other young adults that this was the shortcut, right? And so like another 20 or 30 young adults went, nah, dude, it's not a shortcut. And I was like, it's a shortcut. So I start hiking this hill. About 20 minutes into this, I get to the top of the hill and I realize, nope, the Hollywood, the Hollywood sign's over there. And I look back down the mountain, there's all these people just huffing and puffing, climbing. I'm like, uh, you know, like, oh. And so they get to the top and they're like, dude. And I was like, my bad, bro, my bad. So see the shortcut led us exactly the opposite way from where we wanted to go. 
all of my passion and all of my assertiveness and all of my confidence and all of my zealous efforts were worse, worse than useless because our work wasn't based on knowledge, which way is right and which way is wrong, at least geographically speaking, right? It would have been probably better, as I think about it, probably not to do anything because then we had to go back and rehike everything. This is what it is like to have zeal without knowledge. See, many people believe that it doesn't matter what religion you believe in as long as you're sincere and passionate. This could not be more than wrong. It's not good to hold the wrong belief passionately no matter how you look at it. The next thing that Paul wants us to know is that righteousness, and I want you to hear this, righteousness, a right standing with God and other people, isn't something that is achieved through your own effort. Rather, it is received by faith. Righteousness is not achieved by works. It is received by faith. Go with me to verse 6 and 8. But the righteousness based on faith says, do you not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word I want you to highlight is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So in all the commentaries that I was reading this last week, um, I'll be honest with you, it was kind of a little bit unclear uh, what the meaning of all that is, but there is one thing that is absolutely clear, and that's his application, and that's this, that when you stand before God after you die, either you will argue that you get into heaven based on your own goodness, and you'll be doomed in those efforts, or you will like the ancient hymn writers of the old say something like, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ's blood and his righteousness. See, what he's trying to teach us is that God in Christ Jesus did what you could have never done for yourself. I want you to think about this way, and something we've been discovering in the book of Romans, especially Romans chapter 9, which was a handful of weeks ago, that God has done everything for your salvation. Number one, he sent Christ. Number two, Christ died for our sin. Number three, God raised him from the dead, bringing validation to anything and everything he's ever said. And all God asks for you and I is that you and I believe in this word, the truth, rather, that Paul and Jesus himself were preaching. Which is, by the way, in verse 8, the reason why he says it is near you. The word is near you. The truth, this revelation, it is near you. It means that you and I don't have to go through some difficult and impossible process to get to God. You don't need to go all the way up to heaven. You don't need to go all the way go down to hell to try to find God. All you and I need to do is believe in him in this moment, and you can be saved. It's almost offensive how easy and, and, and the simplicity of the gospel is. And so there are Christian cults, right, over the... Over the, uh, uh, the hundreds of years, that believe, now it can't be right. Like, it just can't be that easy. Like, all I need to do is believe, and like, I can cross the line into righteousness, justification, be legally declared right before God. And so they've tried to add works to this type of stuff. Like, no, you need to, like, you actually have to lift yourself up to the door. And the gospel is, there was already one that lifted himself up to the door. And because you, if you believe and confess, we'll talk about that in a second, his right standing with God can be transferred to you. What was true of Jesus is that he was in a right standing with God, and what was true of you is you're not in a right standing with God. By faith, what is true of him now becomes true of you. You have been grafted, adopted, brought into the family of God. And now what was true of him becomes true of you by the means of faith. So you ask, how, how does this work? Go with me to verse uh, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Two things here. Number one, the mouth is a metaphor for the intellectual understanding of who Jesus is expressed in words. I'm gonna say that again. The mouth is a metaphor here for the intellectual understanding of who Jesus is as it's expressed in words. Every believer in this room, you should at least be able to explain the basic tenets of the Christian faith. If the answer to this question is you can't, you probably are either one, just accepted Christ, and that's, that's acceptable, but if you accepted Christ a long time ago, that's an issue. You should be able to explain the basic tenets of who Jesus is, what he's done in your life, and why mankind needs him. 
Number two, the heart. The heart is a metaphor for the spirit surrendering to the basis or way in which God saves. In other words, there's only one median, one person that can save you through the means and person of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Now, here's why I think I love these verses. They're probably some of my favorite two verses in the entire Bible. Because I think of the clearest statement in all of God's word of how you and I can be saved. Paul first says that it begins with the confession of your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Adonai is the word there. It means king, master. He starts with the mouth because it's the symbol of a conscious acknowledgement of what we believe. But next, go with me to the heart. The heart is often confused with our emotions, but in the Bible, the heart is the center really of one's being. It's where our desires and our intellect and our emotions all intersect. If you read the New Testament, you'll find that so much of the authors of the New Testament, and more specifically Jesus himself, spent so much time talking about our hearts because what we value and what we surrender to in our hearts sets the course for our entire lives. How you and I are going to spend money, form and fill relationships, and even make decisions. And so this is why the conditions of our hearts and the posturing of our hearts, by the way, one of the reasons that we do worship before a pastor comes up and speak is to prepare your heart and open your heart so that God's word can be brought into your heart. The posture of your heart and the condition of our hearts is of utmost importance to Jesus. And where we truly give our lives over to Jesus actually is not necessarily our mind, it's actually in our hearts. So your question is, okay, what does it mean then? What does it mean, right, to make Jesus Lord and Savior? For the sake of time, I'm just going to give you two answers here. Number one, it means this. It means to admit that you were powerless and dead without him. It admits, it's an admission that you are powerless. You cannot get your way to God. And that you are spiritually dead without his involvement in your life. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, For you were dead in your sins and trespasses. In the book of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all of your transgressions or sin. Hear this. Man is not just unethical and unkind. He is lost, dead, and doomed without Jesus Christ. The biggest difference between Jesus Christ and every other religious figure, every other moralist over the millennia who have been deified to become God by mankind, is these moralists, these other religious leaders, came to make bad people good, but only Jesus came to make dead people live. That's the fundamental difference between a relationship with Jesus, who he claimed to be and what he offers you and I, and every other religion. I can improve your life, is what every other religion says. Only Christianity and only Jesus says, but I can give you brand new life. If you were here a handful of uh, months ago, before the book of Romans, we uh, did a series. Uh, it was called The Idol Factory. It was actually through a book by a pastor named Tim Keller. And uh, in it, we, we addressed a story in the book of Genesis with a, a few characters. Um, one is named Jacob, the other's name is Esau, and then the father's name is Isaac. In the story, we learned that uh, the Jacob and Esau brothers, Esau is the older brother and Jacob is the younger brother. Now, in the hierarchical structure of Jewish families, it was the firstborn son that got certain privileges that the rest of the family did not get. In some cases, if the family, if there's only two sons, the wealth would be divided up in this way. Two-thirds goes to the firstborn and one-third goes to the, the, uh, uh, the second born, right? Just by very definition of being the first born, he gets certain privileges, right? Which is, by the way, why Jesus is called the first born of all creation. Not that he's born, he gets privileges that we don't. But anyways, um, so in the story, we see that Jacob is kind of jealous that, that Esau is gonna get certain privileges and blessings. There's this interesting encounter in the book of Genesis where one day he is actually physically wrestling with God. 
There's a part of the story where he doesn't know he's actually wrestling with God. God actually comes in the person of a man, and he's physically like, you know, like double-legging or whatever Jacob, right? Like arm-barring, whatever it is, right? They're legit wrestling, right? And uh, there's this interesting encounter where it comes to realization that he realizes he's wrestling with God, and he tells God, I will not leave you until you bless me. And then God asked him the most extraordinary question. It's like the weirdest question that you like, he goes, hey, what's your name? Like, what's your name? And he goes, what? Like, my, my, name's, my name's Jacob. Now, why do you think he asked him this weird question? Because years before, he went to his blind father Isaac in a dark tent, pretending to be someone he wasn't, his older brother, to get blessings that he had not deserved that should have gone to Esau. And so he literally, the Bible says he put on like a beard, which I don't know how you did that in the ancient world, but did all these crazy things. Um, and his father was blind and like touched his face and, and, and the, the whole story. And he thinks and he talks like it deepens his voice. He talks like his brother. Because in this tradition, in this culture, if the father orally made a commitment, it was binding. And so the whole story is Jacob pretending to be someone he isn't to his blind father. So why does God ask him, what is your name? Because now he is seal, he's kneeling before an all-seeing father and God says, who are you? And then Jacob goes, I get it now. You got me. I'm Jacob. I, I'm not trying to pretend. I'm not trying to be someone I'm not now. I realize who I am and what I need. And the, the Bible says because he admitted to who he was, God said he's going to make something great out of him. The truth is that God can never make something great out of us until we realize who we really are. That God cannot bless your life until you come to an accurate understanding of how desperately you need both his lordship and his saving over your life. My quote that I give you often, probably almost every week, is this. That you are not a mistaker who needs a second, third, and fourth chance. That you and I are a sinner who desperately needs a savior. Did you know, interestingly enough, that nowhere in scriptures are people ever asked to believe in Jesus as their savior? I'm sure you've heard like pastors get on stage like, oh, stand up. Uh, I see the hand in the back. All you need to do is this moment right now, just confess that Jesus is your savior and the savior from your sins. Nowhere in scripture is that the only thing that's being asked. They are asked, first and foremost, to believe in him as Lord. And then their savior. So that brings us to point number two. What does it mean to make Jesus Lord and Savior of my life? Number one, or number one was the first point. Number two is this. Allow him to lead you as Lord as you submit to his lordship over every area of your life. See, when you believe in Jesus as Lord, he becomes your Savior. But you don't accept Christ as Savior and, ex- and then accept him as Lord, as the one who is now in charge of all things, including you. To accept Jesus as Lord means that we've come to a place where we recognize that Jesus has the right to be master over our lives, master over our sexuality, master over our addictions, master over our finances, master over our future, master over our past, master over our present, master over your future occupation, master over it all. It means to include him in all of those things. See, up until this point, where where you confess and give your life over to Jesus' lordship, you have been lord over your life. Up until this point, you decide what you are going to do with your life, what you're going to do with your, uh, with your, uh, uh, what you're going to study, what occupation that you're going to chase, who you are going to date, what you're going to do with your talents, what you're going to do with your money, um, and if you're going to chase calling or if you're going to chase money, whatever it may be. But when you make Jesus Lord, we see reality, we see the reality of life as God made it to be, and we place him over every facet of our lives, our past, our present, and our future, all of it. We learn this truth in the next verse, verse 11 says this. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a beautiful verse and what a beautiful promise. As 
we end today, and I'm going to get you in your groups, I realize that there's probably a large segment of you guys here tonight that have been coming to church maybe for a while. And you've actually never been coming to, you've never came to the place where you've acknowledged Jesus as Lord. I mean, you've been religious, but you're not saved. You have good church attendance, but no attendance in the true family of God. And that's because you've said something like, Jesus, will you save me from my sin? But you've never said maybe the more important phrase, Jesus, will you save me from myself? Will you be Lord over my life? You know, the word Lord and Savior are different in Scripture, in the Greek. Adonai and, uh, sorry, I said an S. It'll come to me in a second. Um, they're different words, like completely different words, because they, they, they want to explain different concepts of who Jesus really is. But you don't get to have one with, without the other. If you confess him as Lord, is what the Bible says. And so tonight, I just want to encourage you, if you're here today and you've actually never uttered the words, Jesus, you are Lord, and then begin the hard but meaningful process of surrendering to him, I want to encourage you to do that. Tonight, I'm going to end with a, a quote from one of my very favorite pastors, a man named Charles Spurgeon. And then I'll pray for you guys and get you in your grips. It says this, we Christians believe everything which the Lord Jesus taught, but we must go a step further and trust him. It's not enough to believe in him as being the son of God and the anointed of the Lord, but we must believe on him. The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is a savior, but it is resting on him, depending on him, lying with all your weight on the Christ as the foundation for all your hope. Believing that he can save you, believing that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with him in unquestioning confidence. Depend upon him without fear as to your presence and eternal salvation. This is the faith which saves the soul. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for you guys and get you in your group. Father, today we thank you that you are not just our savior, but we admit to God that we need you as Lord over our life and every facet of our lives. And so, Father, I'd ask that we'd be cognizant of the areas in which we have commissioned you to be our Savior, but not our Lord. What areas of our lives do you ask for us to trust you and give over into your hand? God, would you continue to lead us as we dive into our groups now? We love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.